Good job, Christian. Amen. Good evening. Derek said I'm going to say it, and I'm just going to say it anyway. I wasn't going to, but I know I went a little bit long this morning, so I'll try and get you out of here a little bit early tonight, but I can't make no promises on that because <laughs> we got some territory to cover tonight because we're talking about David. We're going to talk about the man after God's heart. We started the study last week, and I'll just kind of get into the point. We, we talked about last week, we started it off talking about David and Goliath. We talked about, you know, no matter what was happening, what was going on, we're kind of introduced to David's character and we see that his strength was in the Lord. He wasn't worried about it, he wasn't swayed in any way that he wasn't going to be able to defeat Goliath. And it actually says when David is talking to Goliath right before the battle, he says, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. Today is the day, Goliath, that you are about to be killed. And there was no doubt in David's mind. And, you know, the encouraging thing that we kind of ended on and really the title of my lesson last week was The Battle Belongs to the Lord. Amen. The battle belongs to the Lord, brethren. And whether we <clears throat> want to admit it or not, uh, the sign outside is a great uh, comment to think about. God sees in us what we can't see in ourselves. God is our biggest fan. He knows what we can do in life. The question is, do we? God has got our back no matter what we've done. No matter how we've done it. God has always gotten and will have our back. But here's the thing about David. Tonight I want to focus our attention on another story and I actually want to look at two individuals. I want I don't know why this is happening to me, but I'm in this two phase. So just go with me. I'll get out of it and move into something else. But right now I'm in this comparison uh, preaching. And it's really good, man. This is good stuff right here. But uh, I've got two different types of people that I want us to look at tonight. But the thing about David is, even though he was a man after God's heart, he was still human. He sinned. The Bible tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But what made David, and what's so good about being able to study David is, his heart was right. Because he always knew where the truth lied. And that was in God's word and what he said. And he knew that no matter what it was, he had to obey so this evening, I want us to talk about something that is hard for us to do sometimes. Sometimes it's hard for us to do this spiritual act, to repent. Repentance is what I want to talk about tonight. You know, even though David sinned, he understood what it meant to repent. And as we'll see tonight, repentance involves the heart. It not only involves the heart, though, it involves understanding. 
So I want to start our thoughts this evening from the verse, and I'll kind of use this verse kind of as our guide, is from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. The Bible says, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. I want us to think about those two things. Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. But sorrow of the world produces death. And that's where I want us to start. If you would, I want to look at two characters. And the first character I want us to look at is the repentance of King Saul. If you would, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15. We're going to be there for just a little bit. I want to look at some verses in uh, 1 Samuel. I want to kind of walk through the story that's going on in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 15. Saul was the first king of Israel. And he's fighting and and doing things. And and Samuel the prophet comes to him in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Verse 1 it says, Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. And do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Utterly destroy Amalek. He tells him that he wants him to go now that he's king, and I want you to punish these people. Well, that sounds terrible. But that's not something that God just came up with. There's a situation that has developed way before Saul's time. In Exodus chapter 17, flip back with me real quick and we'll kind of look at this uh, and then get back to the story. God wants Saul to be able to utterly destroy the Amalekites. In Exodus chapter 17... A very familiar story where Moses goes up and his arms get tired and his arms fall down and they put the rock under his arms and then they hold his arms up when they're up. They win the battle when they're down. They lose. This is that battle. Look at verse 8. Exodus 17 verse 8. Now Amlet came and fought with Israel in Rephredim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone, put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands 
one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then Moses, then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. There's going to come a time where I'm going to utterly blot out Amalek. And here we are at the point where this could happen if somebody will obey the right way. Saul gets the charge to go and take care of these Amalekites for what they had done to Israel way back. Look at verse 4 back in 1 Samuel 15. I know I'm giving you a little bit to flip through, but we're back in 1 Samuel 15, and that's where we'll be for just a few minutes. Samuel gives them the command to wipe them out. In verse 4 it says, So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telium, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. So he goes out and in verse 7 it says, And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havela all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, but were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. Now I want us to think about that for a minute. You remember the charge that Samuel gave Saul. He says, I want you to utterly destroy everything. But what does Saul do? He keeps the king. He keeps the best of the sheep. He keeps the best of the oxen. He keeps the best of the lambs, the fatlings. And everything that was good, he kept. And then all the worthless things, he just threw out. Now, if that was me making that decision on my own, that's probably what I would have done too. I would have kept all the good stuff and threw away all the bad. That's common sense. But that's not what God said. Look at verse 10. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel and he cried out to the Lord all night. Now I want us to just think about this for a minute. When we do something that's contrary to God's word, look at how God acts towards Saul. It hurt him. It bothered him. He says, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king because I asked him to do something and guess what he did? Exactly what he wanted to do. He didn't listen to what I told him to do. He did what he thought was best. Now I want us to keep looking at this because 
I want you to see what happens. Look at verse 12. Samuel is upset. Samuel is grieved by this. Samuel likes Saul. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went into Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself, and he has gone all on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul, and, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. He, here's Saul, didn't do what he was supposed to do, but in his mind, he thinks that he has. He's excited. He's happy. He says, blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. We're talking about maybe a minor situation. But it really wasn't. Because it wasn't what God had said. But Samuel said, verse 14, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? And the lowing of the oxen which I hear. And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. <laughs> That's a great idea, right? I mean, uh, this is the best stuff from the sheep. We got the best of everything and we brought it and then we utterly destroyed everything else. Then Samuel said to Saul, verse 16, Be quiet. And I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. He said to him, speak on. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? You see, man's ways are not God's ways. What we may think is a great idea, if it's contrary to God's word, we cannot be a part of it. Because if we do, look at what it says, and do evil in the sight of the Lord. Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? Now look at verse 20. And Saul said to Samuel, But I have, gone, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and brought back Agag, king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. 
he had some things mixed up. He had some truth and he'd made it the truth, but what had happened was he wasn't obedient. He hadn't obeyed like he was supposed to. And look at verse 22. So Samuel says to him, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He also has rejected you from being king. Now I've done a lot of reading and, 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 and kind of done a play-by-play -play in this, but I want us to just think about what's happened. Just a quick recap. God tells him to do something. He tells him to utterly destroy these Amalekites. And what does he do? He destroys everybody except the best of the sheep, the best of the oxen, the best of these things, and he brings the king with him. And he thinks that he's done a really good job. But he hasn't done what the Lord said. You know, it brings us to a, a, a thought, just kind of a side note. To just believe only doesn't mean that you're saved. It means that you're on your way. You know, Romans 10, 9 says, If you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart, you'll be saved. And that's true. But it's unto salvation. It's unto righteousness. There's still things that need to be done in order to be saved. Saul didn't do what the Lord wanted him to do because it was about him. And it was about what he thought was the best. Don't we do that sometimes? Don't we fall into the category where we think what we're doing is the best? But here's the deal. When we are confronted that it's not the best, how do we react? What is our reaction when we realize I messed up? I've sinned. I've not done what I'm supposed to do. What is the first reaction usually? Exactly what Saul does. Look at what he says. 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. I've sinned. I messed up. I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. That's great. Here he is. He's admitting that he's messed up. But then look what he says right after that. But it's because I feared the people <laughs> and I obeyed their voice. The devil made me do it, right? Isn't that that old saying? I'm not good at knowing old sayings, but I think that's one of them, right? The devil made me do it. That's why I did it. The only reason why I was involved in this was because such and such was with me. I mean, he was driving, so I had to be a part of it. The only reason that blah, 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 whatever the situation is, is because of somebody else, right? 
Saul completely takes a bail out. He says, I've sinned. I've messed up. But it's because I feared the people. I was worried about their voice and how they were going to feel about me. What does that say about Saul's heart? What does that say about our heart if we really think about it? When we've messed up. When we've done something that we're not supposed to do. Why is repentance one of the hardest things to do? Because we don't want to admit that we're wrong. That's hard for me. And not only to admit it, to not blame anybody else around me. Oh yeah, I'm wrong, but boy, I need to take people with me on this. I don't own up to the own responsibility and therefore when I do that, it makes me feel better. Think about what 2 Corinthians 7.10 says. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Once Saul realized that his great idea and what he thought may have been a good idea was not a great idea, it was, I'm sorry that I got caught. The only reason why I did that was because they told me that I was scared of them, really. They was going to probably do something Saul had made up in his own way. He had his own agenda to do the things that he wanted to do. That he thought was going to be the best way. You know, this is uh, the, a lesson that we teach our kids, right? If you mess up, you better admit to it. If you do the wrong thing, then you know what? As hard as it is, you got to swallow it and say, you know what, I did it. That's a hard concept to do, is it not? You ever been there? But this is talking about a relationship with the Lord now. This is talking about sometimes nobody else even knows except you and God, and you still will avoid asking for forgiveness. Here's what Saul did. He admitted that he sinned, but he didn't want to take the responsibility of it. That's the hard part about repentance. That's why it's hard for people to continue on the path of righteousness because it's so hard to turn from and turn towards. Amen? Man, it's hard sometimes. Because doing the wrong thing sometimes feels so good. Now I want to go to the second part of this. I want us to go to the repentance of King David. If you would, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. You know, David not only committed adultery, he had the husband of the woman he slept with put on the front lines to be killed. Think about that. The man after God's own heart. Look at 2 Samuel verse, 
1 and chapter 11. And it happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. The king should go out. The king should be at battle. But what's happening? David stays back. We're talking about the man after God's own heart. We're talking about the guy that uh, is bragged on so much in the scriptures. And here he is. Already you see some sneakiness about him. And look at verse 2. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about this woman. And someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him. And he lay with her. For she was cleansed from her impurity. And she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. What a mess to get in. Should be out at battle, he stays back. Sees a beautiful woman on the housetop and he goes and checks on her and he understands who she's married to is one of his men. One of his mighty men. But he takes her anyway. You see how powerful sin is? You see what happens when sin gets put in our face and we don't put it in check? It will make you just resist what God says and you'll do it anyway. The man after God's own heart gets her pregnant. She comes and says, I'm with child. And look at verse 6. Then David sent to Joab saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent... Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. Brings the guy to him and has this small talk with him. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house. A gift of food from the king followed him. This is the type man Uriah was. This is an encouraging type guy right here. Listen to this uh, description of him. He's come back from war. And it says, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord. He's just right down there by where his wife is at. But he sleeps with the servants of the Lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, Man, I love this. This is is powerful. He says, The ark and Israel of Judah are dwelling in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house and to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? 
as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Man, I won't do it. I'm not going to do that. All these people are out at battle, and really you should be too. And here you are, you've got me here, and I don't know why, but I'm not going to disrespect what I know where I should be at. I know I should be out at the battle and here you have me back here uh, eating and drinking and doing all these things. You're catering to me because you feel guilty. He doesn't know that, but that's what David's doing. Look at verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, Wait here today also and tomorrow I will let you depart. When you think about these situations, David isn't any... I mean, Saul isn't really any worse than David. They're both committing these terrible things. Saul going against what God says and David doing the exact same thing. He says to Uriah, uh, So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And verse 13 says, Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him. And he made him drunk. Drunk. And at evening he went out to lie in his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Same thing. He wouldn't go down to his house. What a loyal servant. What a loyal man to David. And he has no idea what David's about to do to him. Verse 14 says, In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by hand, by the hand of Uriah. Here was Uriah with the letter in his hand to get him killed. And he doesn't even open it and look at it. <laughs> I'd be, I mean, if I got that letter, I probably would have snuck and looked at that thing, right? See what it said so I could get the latest scoop on what's going on. We know he didn't do it because it told him of how he was going to get assassinated, how he was going to get killed. What a loyal man. So he wrote the letter, verse 15, saying, Set your right in the front, forefront of the hottest battle. Put him up front where the hottest battle's going on. Put him up front right there. We're talking about the man after God's own heart, y'all. Here's what he's gotten himself into. What is he doing? He's gone into this self motivation to fix everything. What happens when we don't repent of our sins? What do we do is we start covering them up. We start making it uh, right in our own eyes and we start hiding those things. And then it just gets worse and it just gets worse and it just gets worse. You see this totally play out with David here. So he sends him to the hottest uh, battle and retreat uh, from him so that he may be struck down and die. That's what the letter says. Terrible. Terrible. So they do it. Look at verse 22. So the messengers went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. 
the archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. What a relieving feeling for David, huh? It must have been some relief to know that Uriah was dead. Now the cover-up is good, right? Everything is good and, and everything is safe now. Verse 25 says, Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. <laughs> Don't get discouraged that he's dead. It just happens in war. That's just what happens, right? Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. So encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. He had it. He figured it out. He made the plan work. Well, except for one thing. God was watching. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Nobody ever may see what you're doing. Nobody ever may see those deep, dark things that you keep hidden from everybody else. But if there's no repentance on your mind, if you aren't thinking about getting the things that are wrong in your life correct, they will grow into a mess. And here it is. It's happened to David. The man after God's own heart. What a terrible situation David had put himself in. We see both of these stories. These men did what was pleasing in their sight. They did it on their own, what they thought was right. But then Nathan the prophet comes to David. In chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, and then he goes into this story. It says, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had brought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in the bosom, in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. Here was a rich guy who had all these flocks, had all of these animals. And this poor man had this one little lamb that ate with him, that he took care of. And verse 4 says, And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. 
Who in the world would do something like that? Who is this guy? Who is it? As the Lord lives, he says, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. He didn't even care. He didn't care about it. He just did it because he could do it. Man, what a blow. And then Nathan, Nathan said to David, You are the man. You're the man. You're the one who did this. A man after God's own heart knew that that story was wrong. He knew what that rich man had done was wrong. And guess what? It was him. Verse 9 says, Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in His sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. What a terrible feeling David must have had. When we sin and we hide it, what a dangerous game we play. Not only for our lives and how it's going to come out, but what a disrespect to God Almighty. What a disrespect to the one who loves us so much and has given us His Word to guide us and protect us and care for us. What a disrespect we do when we turn to ourselves and think we have the best idea. You know, David was broken. There was a punishment for adultery. Think about this. Leviticus 20.10, here's what the law said. The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. Killed. That's the punishment. That's what David was facing. So David could have done just like Saul, huh? 
We could have had a big elaborate story to uh, say uh, why he did it and the reasons why he wasn't feeling good so he stayed home and he just happened to be up there. I mean, he could have made all the excuses in the world just like we'll do so many times. I do it myself and continue to do that sin that needs to be repented of. Continue and continue to do it. Or you could do like David did. Look at verse 13. So David said, with the understanding of what the punishment for his crime was, for his sin was, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And that's it. Nothing else. Pure repentance. Admitting that he had messed up. Admitting that he had done wrong. Which brings us back to the verse. 2 Corinthians 7.10 For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. What type of sorrow do we have? Do we have a sorrow that we're just sorry we got busted? Or do we have a true sorrow that produces repentance which leads to salvation? And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. (laughs) And here's the problem. And I'm about done. I went over again. Sorry, y'all. when you repent that doesn't mean it's fixed when you mess up and you do the wrong thing you still have to face the consequences that's the hardest part is understanding that yes you may be forgiven by God but now you're going to have to reap what you've sowed So being a person after God's own heart, when we think about repentance, it doesn't depend on perfection. Because we all sin. We all mess up. What does it depend on? Being wholly committed to God and His will. W-H-O-L-L-Y. Holy with everything you got. Everything that you are. And when you do that, your heart reveals your commitment and your obedience to Him. Very good thinking. So here, as we end, I want us to think about this. The issue is not, are we perfect? Because we're not. The issue is, does your heart belong to God? Is your heart God's heart? And if it is, repentance is something that you'll do. It's something that you won't be ashamed of. What does the Bible say? Confess your sins to one another. Have you done that lately? Oh man, that's a hard one, ain't it? Hey, Mickey, I need to tell you something, man, what I've done messed up on, what I'm struggling with. The Bible tells us when we do that, it makes us stronger. It makes us better. What kind of heart will we have? Will we have a heart like Saul? Because of that, God took the kingdom from him. 
Or will we have a heart like David? That even though we mess up, we put our faith and our trust in the Lord and because of that, through those situations, through those struggles, we have the Lord with us. Maybe you're here and you need to be baptized. Maybe you're here and you need to become a Christian. Jesus said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Jesus could come back right now. Don't wait. Don't put it off. But maybe you're here and you've sinned. Maybe you're here and you've been hiding some stuff. Maybe you're here and you need to let it off your chest. Maybe you need the prayers of the saints. Don't wait. Don't continue in it. Don't walk out this door and continue doing the same thing over and over until it just becomes a complete disaster like David. Whatever you need, come right now together we stand and sing.